Eternal Father, we ask you to make us more grateful for having the sacrament of penance, and we pray that for the future we may use it more fruitfully. We ask this through Jesus Christ, your Son, whose blood it is that washes us from our sins, and who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. O Mary, conceived without sin. Pray for us who have recourse to thee. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. It gives me particular pleasure tonight to introduce Father Thwaites, whom I have known personally for a number of years, and I have a great appreciation of his work with young people particularly, and his work in Brixton. He has a lot of irons in the fire. It would take too long to um, tell you about all the good things he does. He was um, instrumental, for instance, in starting that wonderful thing, the Holy Cross Bookshop, which um, only stocks books which are authentic Catholic teaching. You won't find any wonky theological books in the Holy Cross Bookshop. And it's very pleasant to see what a success that um, is being made of that particular shop. And I believe another one is open now in the West Country. Last session of the forum last year, Father came along and his talk was immensely popular. And I think, as I said last time, we, had, um, we always record the talks on cassettes so that the wonderful message is available to a wider audience than here. And Father Thwaites, I think, broke the record for cassettes that were sold. <coughs> he says his subject tonight is confession, the neglected sacrament. Well, I'm sure that his talk through the cassette and here tonight will not be neglected. We will be very grateful for it. He has asked if he might sit down, and we say we always allow our speakers to take the most comfortable position that they prefer. We will have time for questions and discussions afterwards. And now, I, without more ado, I ask Father if he would continue. I think I'll start standing up and see how it goes. You're going to try standing up. Yes. So we just alter that a little bit. Yes. On Holy Saturday last year, I was asked to go to a church to help hear confessions. <coughs> And when I got there, they'd been going on for a quarter of an hour about, and there's a priest, one of the priests was in the confessional hearing confessions, and waiting in the church to go to confession was just one old man. So I went into the presbytery and found the parish priest and congratulated him there's no more sin left in his parish, and I went home to get on with some work. Amazing, Holy Saturday, no one wanted to go to confession. Why? Well, people just don't know the immense benefits that come to us from using this sacrament. And so, I suppose priests spend a lot of their time going around giving sales talk on confession. We've got two jobs, really, to consecrate the Holy Eucharist and to get people to come to receive it. And so, trying to get people to go to confession more, it's, it's all part of it. To begin with, I thought of uh, going through some of the things the Holy Father said, because to wind up, to end up the Holy Year, his last nine conferences, his Wendy's talks, were on confession. 
and the apostolate of Catholic truth has brought out a booklet with all these talks. And so I was going through these and making a sort of digest and everything. But about four days ago, I met a good lady, I suppose she's here, who said, please keep it simple. Well, the Holy Father's marvellous, but, but it's not simple. And so I scrapped that idea, and I'm going to comment on something uh, that Pius XII wrote in his encyclical on the mystical body. It's often quoted. He says, equally disastrous in its effects. He's been talking about overemphasis of the action of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification, and this leads to underestimating the personal effort each one has to make. He said, equally disastrous in its effects is the false contention that the frequent confession of venial sins is not a practice to be greatly esteemed, and that preference is to be given to that general confession which the Bride of Christ, together with our children united in the Lord, makes daily through the priests who are about to go up to the altar of God. I think Pius Twelfth is marvelous. Then he goes on, that there are many very laudable ways in which these sins can be expiated is perfectly true, as you are well aware. But for constant and speedy advancement in the path of virtue, we highly recommend the pious practice of frequent confession, introduced by the Church under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. For by this means we grow in a true knowledge of ourselves and in Christian humility, bad habits are uprooted, spiritual negligence and apathy are prevented, the conscience is purified and the will strengthened, salutary spiritual direction is obtained, and grace is increased by the efficacy of the sacrament itself. Therefore, those among the young clergy who are diminishing esteem for frequent confession are to know that the enterprise upon which they have embarked is alien to the spirit of Christ and most detrimental to the mystical body of our Savior. I was going to comment on all those bit by bit. He says, we grow in a true knowledge of ourselves. Well, that's part of the sacramental grace we get. More interior enlightenment. We see ourselves more clearly. We can sin without God's help, but we can't see our sins without his help. And this sacrament does throw a light into our own hearts. Pascal said, if you knew your sins, you'd lose your mind. What we see of our sins, I suppose, is just the tip of the iceberg. This awareness of our own interior, it's, it's so important. Uh, there's a book by uh, Father Lallemore, he didn't write it, it's just notes that people took at his talks, called Spiritual Doctrine. And his great message is that we have to keep a custody of our heart. We have to keep a watch over our own interior. We have to be aware of our thoughts, of our motivation. This isn't the same as examination of conscience. An examination of conscience is done once or twice a day. This is done continually. An examination of conscience exercises the memory. This, this doesn't. It's made with some effort. An examination of conscience, this doesn't call for any effort. It's like having a little sentry box in our hearts from which we observe ourselves. And he says that without this awareness of our own interior, it's difficult to make much progress. He says we can commit a hundred sins a day 
and be unaware of it. Anyhow, that what he recommended for people who were really trying to develop this was daily confession. This is the sacrament that does help us make, make us more sensitive uh, to, to sin. You must have had the experience of, of coming out of confession and then thinking of things that uh, you could have said, perhaps should have said, but that you didn't think of when you went into confession. That's part of the sacramental grace that you've received. So, frequent confession, it does make us more aware of ourselves. When people say, I can't think of anything to say, for some people that's a great problem. The reason they don't go to confession is they think, think of nothing to say. Well, I'm afraid that really means that one ought to go to confession. Sin does tend to give us a sort of spiritual cataract so that... Uh, we just can't see things very clearly at all. And so to stay away from confession, because there's nothing that we can think of, really, is putting the cart before the horse. If we went to confession more, we think of plenty of things to say. And so with greater delicacy of conscience, it is one of the sacramental graces we get when we go to confession. I think it's always like the air, this is the illustration I always use, the air that we're breathing right now. It's, it's empty, I mean, it's just air. But if a ray of morning sunlight comes into the room, you see all sorts of little motes and things dancing around in the air. And we look into our soul, not a sin in sight. But then if God sends a ray of his grace into our heart, perhaps we can see plenty that uh, it'd be worth mentioning in confession. So confession does help us in that way. In the examination of conscience, we must acknowledge the link that exists between my sin and myself. I may say, I, I behaved in a devious way. But then I've got to make the connection and realize I am devious. I mean, it was I who did this. My liberty has been directed to evil. We have to let the facts speak for themselves. That my evil choices do come from my heart. And so, beginning with what I've done, I truly come to know who I am. And so, the effort involved in going to confession, it does help us grow in a true knowledge of ourselves. The Holy Father went on. And in Christian humility, well, I think we all know this. To have to confess again and again, week after week, or month after month, or year after year, that we're not getting any better. This is good for our humility. And the fact we find it humiliating shows that we're still wanting in humility. If we were perfect in humility, we wouldn't find these things humiliating. I remember once I was in hospital and a physiotherapist came along and uh, she was trying to make me lift my arm. And I said, stop. And she said, you don't tell physiotherapists to stop. She was a Belfast Catholic, very tough. <laughs> if my arm had been all right, it wouldn't have hurt me. The fact that it hurt me showed that what she was doing was good for me. And if we find confession humiliating, it shows that it's doing us good, that we have this pride in us that still needs to be worn away with God's grace. 
And so God can allow people a humiliating weakness because I suppose it is our want of humility more than anything else that stands between us and closer union with God. And I really think that God can allow people to, to have some, uh, some weakness they can't overcome because without it perhaps he fears that they'll get proud and lose their soul. I knew an old tramp once, Pat Cronin. He had a great drink problem. And all his life he'd been struggling with this. He told me that, you know, sometimes he'd be kneeling at the back of the church, praying hard, Lord, keep me away from it. And then he'd go out and get drunk again. And when he got drunk, he used to steal, and then he'd be in and out of prison. And he died with the little sisters of the poor in near Preston. And I used to think that this weakness kept him holy. He must have been a fine man when he was young, fine-looking man. And I suppose he could have done very well in a material sort of way and got rich and proud and drifted away from God. But as it was, this humiliation that happened again and again all through his life, it kept him humble, it kept forcing him back to God and to the sacraments. And as I saw it, it, it seemed to me that this is what God allowed him to bring him safe to heaven. After all, virtue comes from God. And if God chooses not to give it, that must be for our good for the time being. Father Willie Doyle had a fearful temper, apparently, when he was younger. And it lasted quite a long time. So, if, it's, if we find our confession humiliating, we should try to embrace that. Edel Quinn... The, the legionary, they're trying to get her canonized. She said that when she went to confession, she always tried to humiliate herself. Well, I can't imagine there's much in her life that could have humiliated her, but it, it was the right idea, the right approach. If that's a difficulty, I, like in all, I suppose, we should turn to Our Lady, the one person who never needed to go to confession. But she knows how... We console her son when we do try to humble ourselves. And looking at her perfect humility, it may help us. Children learn by looking at their mother. So, in our sins, I suppose in all sins there's some sort of pride in that when we sin, we prefer ourselves to God. And so it's only fitting that in the confession, in the reparation we're trying to make, there should be this act of humility... The present Holy Father says that when we go to confession, we must reveal ourselves as one who has betrayed God and needs his mercy. There's that bit in the Mass in Qual Nocte Trade Bato, in the night in which he was betrayed, a long night, and uh, we have been the Judas so often. Our sins will be uh, wiped out either in this life by the crosses God sends us or by penance we undertake or else in the next life in, in the fires of purgatory. But the increased union with God that our humility gains for us, that'll be something forever. And so if, if our sins and our confessions help increase our humility, then they're bound to lead, I suppose, to closer union with God. 
and make us more pleasing to God. So even out of, out of our sins, there's always a lot of good to be gained. But for that, confession's needed. Pius Twelfth went on, bad habits are uprooted. Well, the wounds left in us by sin, by original sin and by our own sins, these can be healed only by Christ, and ordinarily by Christ working through the sacraments. No psychiatrist can probe these wounds. It's only God knows how deep they are. And really, when people start talking about going to psychiatrists for, trouble, for their troubles, it seems to me that one has, first of all, to find out uh, what's their sacramental life. This is a bit of di a digression, but uh, I'm sure it's true that uh, if people are having all sorts of problems and uh, maybe needing to see a psychiatrist or seeing one, the very first thing is to find out, you know, what about the sacraments? I knew a woman, and she'd been to a mental hospital once or twice, and I was convinced that if she could become a Catholic, she'd be all right. So she became a Catholic and started going to daily mass, and she was completely all right. And then she went back home to Africa, and she went to a sort of spiritualist church and came back, and so back at square one. Her children kept praying, and she came back to the sacraments again. I mean, she went back to a mental hospital when she came to England. And then she had one more relapse. Each time it was the prayer of her children that brought her back to the sacraments. When she's going to the sacraments, she's fine. But when she, when she isn't, then she goes really off the rails. So one has to check out, first of all, what's the sacramental life like, if there's all sorts of emotional, mental sort of wounds. Like in a car, if it car stops, the first thing to do is to find out if there's any petrol. I once had a lovely old Anglia, used a lot of oil, and once I put too much oil in it, and in, in eight days, three times, I had to be towed home. It just sort of petered out. And the third time I was brought home, the, end, the sort of car mechanic looked at it, nothing wrong, he said, mechanically, it's perfect, it just won't go. So I thought, if it's, even if it isn't mechanically perfect, it no, won't go, it's no good to me. So I sold it to a lad for 25 pounds, I think. All he needed was more petrol. He put petrol in it, did it up, and took it to Spain on holiday and sold it for 90 pounds. The first thing was check off on petrol. And if people have sort of, some sort of trouble in their interior, mental order, the first thing to do is check up on the sacraments. Are they going to confession? And for Catholics to start going to psychiatrists before they uh, bring their sacramental life up to what it should be, really that's put, putting things in the wrong order. These wounds left in us by, and of course, mental sickness, like physical sickness, in some way it comes from original sin. It's the sacraments that God's given us for the healing of these wounds. We know that God's grace is not confined to the sacraments, and there's nothing to stop any non-Catholic or non-Christian making a perfect act of contrition. But will they? Will they? There's nothing to stop me drawing a perfect circle freehand. Michelangelo could do it. Leonardo da Vinci could do it, I believe. But I couldn't do it. I need an instrument. And as for making a perfect act of contrition, people who are steeped in sin 
and psychologically not ready to rise to the high motivation that the perfect act of contrition demands. Nevertheless, and this is one of the great blessings of this sacrament, provided they fear God because of what they believe they deserve for having sinned and confess their sins, they are restored to the life of grace. So, bad habits are uprooted. It, it has a tremendous effect, this sacrament. Daily communion, frequent confession, there's nothing can withstand that. Psychologically, to uproot a bad habit, we have to have a true sorrow for having given way to it. And confession to a priest helps us come to this, come to this true con contrition. It helps us make that movement of our will away from sin and towards God. It helps us have that sincere sorrow for sin without which God cannot forgive us. And so, confession, really, if... Uh, actually, I was talking to a couple of lads two days ago, and uh, one was a Catholic who's not gone to the sacraments for, uh, I suppose, a few years, and the other was his friend who wasn't a Catholic. Anyhow, the Catholic said he'd come on Sunday to Mass and confession. And the non-Catholic asked if he could too. I said, sure. He's a Christian. Uh, I'm sure absolution will work. Mind you, I got halfway through hearing a Muslim's confession and found out he was a Muslim. It wouldn't work with him, but I suppose if a person's a, a Christian, I don't see why. I don't know what a theologian would say about it. But anyhow, it, it's bound to do him good. The Pius XII goes on, spiritual negligence and apathy are prevented. Well, going to confession regularly, is it praiseworthy regularity or dull routine? Even if it seems to be dull routine, there's no reason for stopping it. It means, I suppose, we're being too easy on ourselves. But to... Uh, Stop going to frequent confession just because it seems to be the same every time. That's, that's very wrong. Our holy communions are the same every time. A lot of things are the same every time. Married life must get sort of have its monotony in some way. But what develops is this relationship with somebody else, which is done, I suppose, in monotony, in fidelity, in spite of sort of monotony. There's a great danger in neglecting confession because we can get into a sort of spiritual coma. When I was teaching, there was a boy in the school who died in the holidays uh, in the bath. He was gassed. They had a sort of gas heater in the bathroom and something must have gone wrong and he went to sleep in the bath and when eventually they broke the door down, he was dead. It must have happened sort of gradually. If they'd broken the door down earlier, well, they'd have saved his life. And people can get into a sort of coma. They just don't realize how weak they're getting. And Satan doesn't do anything sudden to startle them. They can gradually slip into a sort of coma and perhaps even wake up in hell. Luther, before he died, he said that by doing away with confession, he kicked away the bottom rung in the ladder of salvation. Regular confession, it's a marvelous help to anybody to prevent themselves drifting insensibly away from God. 
for everyone I recommend at least monthly confession for safety, all one's life. Less than monthly confession I think is dangerous. I tell teenagers always, fortnightly confession. And really, I mean, what Pius XII went every day, if people have tried going to confession every day, if it's easy, if they find a priest who will bear with them, there's great profit to be had from it. If a priest says, ah, you're, you're wasting my time, well, that's, he shouldn't. Uh, we shouldn't get scrupulous. And people who are scrupulous, well, they have to keep away from this sacrament. But ordinarily, there's nothing but benefit comes from it. In all the sacraments, it's Christ who touches our soul. I heard of somebody who he used to smoke and he chewed tobacco and he took snuff. And he said if there's any other way of getting the poison into his system, he'd probably use it. He had such an addiction for, for nicotine. Well, we should have such an addiction for Christ that uh, we just can't have too much of him. And it seems a great shame to let an opportunity of, of going to confession slip. I remember I was in some place and there was confession going on, so I said, I think I'll just go to confession. And when I came out, a woman said to me, I don't know how you do it. She spent about an, uh, an hour examining her conscience, I think. Well, that's all wrong. We're not meant to torture ourselves in that matter. Sure, we have to make an examination of conscience, but uh, we know we are, all, we are sinners, whether we can think of anything or not. We're only obliged to mention any mortal sins that we know of. As for venial sins, whether we mention them or not, if we're sorry for them all, we know they're all forgiven in the sacrament. So, confession sh shouldn't be a, a matter of, of torturing ourselves at all. When we go to confession, it's Jesus we ought to think of. I mean, he's there. He's uh, waiting to welcome us. And although it's a priest who uh, gives us the sacrament, it's he just puts us in touch with Christ. It's Christ who touches our soul. <clears throat> this uh, sentence it keeps uh, prevents spiritual negligence and apathy are prevented. If people do start accepting any venial sin into their lives, if there's anything which they know displeases God, and they just go on doing it, that's fatal for any, as far as any intimacy with Jesus goes. And frequent, regular confession, it does stop that awful sort of tepidity coming over and the person to think, well, it's not a mortal sin. That's too awful. It means the whole relationship with Christ comes nowhere near what our Lord wants it to be. Uh, the Pope went on, the conscience is purified. Well, our conscience uh, is very malleable. And we have to be careful about it and try always to, make, to adjust it more to coincide with the conscience of Christ. A priest I was talking to, he was been giving a boy's retreat and a boy came up to him and said, how was it when he passed one of those shops where things were put out on the pavement on little tables and he heard a, little, heard a voice inside him saying, go on, nick it. 
that was his, what his conscience seemed to be telling him. He wondered how it could be so. Our conscience really can take a 180-degree turn. Well, obviously, I suppose, if a man's been swindling people all his life and he's got very rich through swindling people and now the chance comes to do an insurance company out of a lot of money just by telling one good lie, well, his conscience would tell him you can't let that opportunity pass. And it's a mortal sin. So we have to be very careful about our conscience and confession uh, does keep getting our conscience sorted out and straightened up. In the old days before radar, I believe, when a ship, before a ship left port, it would manoeuvre around to try to get its compass set right. Obviously, if the compass is pointing north and you put a big iron anchor right next to it, it will not point in the right way. And so to get the... when the new, new load of the cargo has been put on board, they manoeuvre around just to get the compass pointing in the right direction. And confession does that with our conscience. And so, I suppose, if our conscience doesn't reproach us with having, with any awareness that I've resisted God's grace, if I can't think of any sin, that would be sufficient evidence that I need to go to confession. Sin affects both the intellect and the will. It tends to paralyze the will and produce in the intellect a sort of spiritual cataract, lessening a vision which can lead to total blindness. I know a priest, he was chaplain in Brixton Prison, for years, and he told me how he'd been trying to get one prisoner to come to confession. man hadn't been to confession for 25 years. And this man said, well, really, Father, I honestly don't think I've got anything to confess, really. Maybe sometimes a little want of humility. That's all you could think of. So confession does help our conscience. And then the Pope went on, the will is strengthened. Quite apart from the sacramental grace that comes with absolution, and quite apart from the fact that it's our Lord himself who touches the soul to cleanse it and comfort it and strengthen it, a reason why confession makes the return of the sinner to God much easier is this, that it concentrates the penitent's attention and energy on the one essential factor in the process of reconciliation, that is, the movement of the will towards God if you like, a change of heart. This is what makes it so marvellously easy. Confession cuts out all the frills. The return of the sinner to God can be an extremely emotional situation, but it's not the emotions that bring him back. It's the will that is the legs of the soul. The return of the prodigal son, a very emotional situation. But, I mean, he had to come back first. Confession keeps emotion in a proper subordinate role and enables the sinner to come straight to the point. I remember hearing somebody's confession walking up and down Socky Hall Street in Glasgow. I met him and he hadn't been at the sacraments for some time, so we, he just went to confession there. It's a marvellously easy way. Th these good evangelists your Billy Graham and so on, they help many people come back to God, I'm sure. But it, it requires a marvellous, well, besides being a holy man and all that, no doubt, it requires eloquence, whole apparatus of, I suppose, the hymns and everything and the psalms they sing to help people realise how good 
God is and then lead them on to make this act of perfect contrition. But confession doesn't, doesn't need that. It uh, just brings the person to the point of realizing that I must submit to God. It is a matter of the will. I think it's always easy to, uh, I don't quite know how right this is, but this is the way I put it, to put obedience as, as being the great test that we're set in this life. That in heaven there's just the one divine will, and we're invited to come and live there, submit it with great, in great joy to this divine will for all eternity. And our whole task in this life is to learn to submit our will to God's holy will. Abraham made that amazing, marvelous submission of his will to God's will. Sunday Mass. It's a very small little test that God uh, sets people to habituate them to, to submitting to God's holy will. And... Uh, for helping people to get confession, to show them that, after all, God is God, and we're just creatures. And if there's going to be any happy relationship between the Creator and the creature, we have to admit that God is God. He's number one, and we must submit. Confession helps the person realize that. And since they don't have to come to make this perfect act of contrition, but just realize that they do need to submit, and they have disobeyed God, and uh, that uh, could lead them to hell if they don't agree to come back to their father. Confession makes the whole thing so easy. And uh, it sort of defuses what could be a, an explosive emotional situation. And the person does come back, and perhaps later on they'll realize the emotion will come sort of later on, perhaps, when they realize how good God is. But for the actual coming back, I mean, as the prodigal son sort of slogged his way home, I don't think there's much emotion. The emotion came later when he's in his father's arms. And it's confession that enables a person to make that journey so easily back to God. Then the Pope goes on, salutary spiritual direction is obtained. There is a diff difference between spiritual direction and confession. And uh, we don't have to go to confession always to the person from whom we take spiritual direction. It's not always possible. Everyone needs somebody they can go to for spiritual direction, not necessarily a priest. But we all do need somebody, certainly, to whom we can go and talk about spiritual things somebody who's sound in the faith. The new confessionals they set up, I think they sometimes confuse the two. I mean, confession is one thing, spiritual direction is something else. And to have a confessional where you're sort of sitting there facing and a bit of chit-chat, uh, certainly for some people it, it just doesn't help. What they want is just the sacrament. What they want is Jesus. Backfires sometimes. I know somebody, she went to Lourdes, 
and this priest was quite chatty and wanted, she just wanted confession, but he wanted a nice chat. And so he said, then he said, shall we say a prayer together? And she said, well, could we say the Anima Christi, Father? The poor chap, he got stuck in the second line. <laughs> but uh, spiritual direction can be got, and uh, sometimes people complain that the priest uh, doesn't help them in this way. I generally tell converts to sort of shop around until they find a priest who helps them. It's very important to find a priest who is helpful in confession. Uh, Though, as I say, not necessarily, you don't have to go to him all the time. We can go to any priest just for the sacrament. But uh, confession, I suppose, is the easiest place to receive spiritual direction, when we just laid bare our soul and our weaknesses and things. And also the priest, he certainly gets a special grace to say what he ought to say. A priest can find himself saying things that have never entered his head before, and he knows they're just what that person needs. And the Pope goes on, grace is increased by the efficacy of the sacrament itself. If it's been mortal sin, we know that uh, the person is really transformed, he's ontologically changed. He's, as St. Paul says, he's a new creation. There's an immense change takes takes place when uh, serious sin is forgiven. If a person's been away from God for years and somehow in Satan's power, and then they receive absolution, it's such a shock for some people, they never fall away again. So just to go to this sacrament, it means that we are closer to God than we, than we have been before. All past sin is forgiven, the life of grace comes back to us, and we have the extra merit of this sacrament we've received, this confession we've made. I knew a woman, her husband was a psychiatrist, not a Catholic, and he's told her that if every religion had confession, psychiatrists would be out of a job. It brings such blessing to a person. That finishes what Pius XII said. I'm going to end up now by giving three marks of a good confession and then three fruits of confession. The first mark is tranquility. And this, of course, is where scrupulous people uh, are shown when they don't get this tranquility. We should be very confident that this sacrament works and that it it, isn't, it doesn't require a saint to make this confession. God makes his sacraments for sinners. I knew a Polish couple, and they we're talking about confession, and he said he didn't like to go because he thought the priest didn't understand what he was saying. And she said, but that's just why I'd like to go. The, the, the sacrament does work. Uh, God's, on, God's eager to give us this. Uh, he's eager to forgive us our sins. As long as there be no deliberate deception on our part, even though we express ourselves inadequately, and maybe the priest doesn't understand us properly, nevertheless the, the sacrament's received infallibly. God's made his sacraments for sinners. This one is for sinners. 
and we just have to do our best. And maybe a person needs to go several times to confession before they finally get that satisfaction of feeling they've made a really good confession. But it doesn't mean to say the first one didn't, they didn't receive the grace in it. They receive the full forgiveness of, of all the sins they forgo- they've even forgotten. And uh, if there is some venial sin, which, uh, the mention of which uh, disturbs us, maybe it would be safer not to mention it. If, as long as we're sorry for it, it, it's forgiven. But if there's some venial sin that gets us a bit worked up, better just not mention it uh, and leave it to God. So we have to be very confident that uh, Jesus does operate in this sacrament and that he's not waiting for us to uh, make a 100% perfect confession. No, our relationship with Jesus isn't like that. Uh, he said you've got to be like little children. Children don't do things perfectly. And children are very happy to come to their mother. And they often just climb up on their mother's lap when they've got nothing to say to her. They just want to be a bit closer to her. And when we go to confession, maybe there's nothing very much to say, but we do know that we need Jesus more. And we do know that even though our minds are blank, we are sinners. And so then, maybe just to go to confession and say there's nothing you remember, especially since your last confession, but you're sorry for all the sins of your past life, especially for having told lies or disobedience or want of charity or something. So this sacrament should give a great peace of heart, and we shouldn't be anxious, lest through uh, not having expressed ourselves very well, lest, uh, or maybe even having forgotten a mortal sin. We know what's forgotten is forgiven. We mention it next time, sure. But it should leave great peace in the heart. Then exactness. Uh, we should try to be clear and put the priest in the picture. If there's real sin, uh, we must say so. I mean, if I've shoplifted a couple of diamond rings, it's not enough to say that I was slow in resisting temptations to covetousness. <laughs> so we shouldn't sort of wrap things up. Or if it's a matter of venial sins, I've mentioned this already, that if the mention of them troubles me, maybe just omit them. So if a thing's just an imperfection, well, it's not a sin. Uh, in, in that connection, it's good always to end one's confessions by saying that we're sorry for all the sins of our past life because obviously if I accuse myself of having been uncharitable and in point of fact I was but the thing came out of my mouth before I realised what I was saying and so let's say there there was no sin Uh, and then maybe uh, I was late for Mass say and I was late for Mass but it just couldn't be helped something happened and I just couldn't get... Well, I've mentioned no sin. And if I leave it at that, there's not matter for absolution. And just like a priest can't say mass with a bit of cardboard and Coca-Cola, he has to have bread and wine. So uh, the, for absolution, there needs to be some sin. And so it's wise always to end one's confession by saying, and for these and the sins I can't remember, especially 
sins or something in my past life. I'm truly sorry and humbly ask pardon of God and penance and absolution of you, Father, was asked what to say. So exactness. And then thirdly, energy. We only have a, a limited amount of spiritual energy and uh, we need to keep this for the purpose of amendment. The quality of our purpose of amendment shows the quality of our confession, or at least it shows the quality of our contrition. And it's this that shows how serious we are in our desire for total union with Jesus. People can sort of wear themselves out examining their conscience and making an exact litany of venial sins and still go on doing it without any special effort at changing themselves. We should try to concentrate on our predominant weakness and attack there. In the imitation, I think it says, doesn't it, if every year we overcame one fault, we'd soon be perfect. And so, to keep our main energy for our purpose of amendment, I always use the illustration of Matt Talbot when explaining what a purpose of amendment is. He had that massive drink problem, and he found that on his way home when he had money in his pocket, he just couldn't pass these pubs. He just went in and came home drunk. And so he worked out a way of getting home from work, a very roundabout way, but not passing any pubs. And like that, he got home uh, sober. Well, that's a serious purpose of a man, but he worked out how to get home without passing all these occasions of sin. And lastly, three fruits of a good confession. First, it cuts down our purgatory. I meant to look up a few references with this, but I forgot, but it does cut down our purgatory. So, every time we go to confession, it means I'm that bit nearer the vision of God. Well, for that reason alone, it would be a good thing to uh, not to miss out on opportunities of confession. It's a sacrament. Then again, it increases our love of God. It increases uh, our awareness of God's love for us. The prodigal son never knew his father, really, until he got home. He never knew how much his father loved him. It, it took all that sort of wretchedness, wretchedness of sin and then the reconciliation with his father to make him realize how good his father was, how his father loved him, how his father never stopped loving him. And this certainty that God loves us in spite of, of who we are, this should, it has to be a sort of foundation of our whole spiritual life. W without it, it's, uh, it's difficult to, to, to grow up as we should. W when children come from a, a damaging environment, from, their, from a childhood where, where they're not loved, they can have problems in maturing. Till, I remember telling that to our, our novice master, and he said, well, actually, he, he'd been like that. He'd been brought up by an aunt, a terribly holy man. Well, the love of God made up 
a made up with him. But uh, it's a fact, people can have difficulty in maturing if, as children, they're not adequately loved. And if people don't realize that God, their Father, loves them, they'll have great difficulties in maturing spiritually. That's the great lesson, I suppose, of St. Therese, and why the popes call her the great saint of modern times, and why pope after pope urges us to study her teaching and try to follow her little way. Her marvelous awareness of this love that God has for us, his sinful children, this merciful, compassionate love that God has for us. And realizing that it's precisely because we're so wretched, in a way, that it's this that makes us so appealing to God. I was at a children's sports day once in our seminary, we, for the children we taught catechism to, and between two events, when the track was empty, suddenly a little boy came down the track howling, and he was a, quite small, and his face was dirty, and his nose was all running, and I was looking at this little kid, and the woman I was talking to said, oh, it makes you wish they never grew up. And I looked at her, and she was looking at this awful little brat with great love in her eyes, and I thought, my word, it's precisely those things that the child would make, make it a bit sort of distasteful to me that make it attractive to her. She wanted to pick it up and sort of wipe its face and everything, I suppose. That's what a human mother's like. Now, God our Father, the fact that we're so weak, in no way does it turn him off from, from loving us. And when we go to confession, uh, we realize that better. Like the prodigal son, we realize that God loves us not because we've just been to confession. He loves us because he's our Father. And so for, for that fruit alone, it's worth going to confession a lot. Our growth in union with God, it, it does depend a lot on this great confidence we have that God loves us. And then lastly, of course, it pleases Jesus and Mary. Every good mother likes to see her children going to confession. And our Blessed Lady must be very happy at seeing us come up to Calvary to have our souls washed in the blood of her Son. Mothers not only like to see their children go to confession, they tell them to go sometimes. I knew a priest, and he said that when they were children, their mother sent them off every fortnight. And when they complained, she'd say, did you go last week? I said, no, well, off you go. She just, and it worked. She sent them off to confession every two weeks. So mothers like that. And obviously our Blessed Lady does like seeing us come to this, come to the sacrament. This by this exercise in humility and submission of our will to God's will, we become more like her. And then lastly, of course, it, it pleases our Lord because we're letting him apply his precious blood to our wounded souls. On Calvary, he suffered so much for us. When we go to confession, we say, Dear Lord, here's one poor sinner who's really glad and grateful you died for me. So, it would be a great thing if we all go to confession more often. I don't know whether there's any sort of theological backing for this, perhaps somebody could tell me, but just like communion is the food of the whole mystical body, which must be true what I'm going to say, yeah, 
each communion, it benefits the whole body, just like when a child eats, it's the whole body that grows. And so every time we use this sacrament, it must help the whole mystical body. It must help the church. I know it's a very personal sacrament. It's our sins we confess. But nevertheless, it's bound to have its effect right through the whole body of Christ. And since it seems pretty certain that confessions in this country have at least halved in the last 20 years, the number of confessions heard, maybe that's contributed in some small way to the, to the decline of religion among our people and there are so many young people falling away. So let's all resolve to go to confession a lot and use it well and thank God for it. Thank you. For those of you who haven't been here before, I would like to explain that we have this roving microphone so that your questions and your contributions to the discussion may also go on to the tape. So before you start speaking, would you give Cecil here just time to get to you with the machine, living machine age? Now, anybody like to start? Ah, oh, good. We have one here, Cecil. Oh, it's a brief one, Father. Did you say that you encouraged or accepted the participation in both, uh, Holy Commun- both uh, confession and Holy Communion by a non-Catholic? Uh, no. Uh, did I encourage participation in Communion Confession by non-Catholics? No. Uh, obviously we're not allowed to give to non-Catholics and it's uh, and they should be told they can't come to receive confession, communion what I said was that uh, as for non-Catholics I must say when I receive people in the church I always, nearly always hear their confession before I receive them because if I go out in the middle of the Mass and I'm out for a quarter of an hour, people can start wondering. So uh, I, I do ordinarily hear the confession before I receive them. And uh, for the life of me, I, I can't see why. Mind you, I've talked about this with a priest and he disagreed with me, but I, I can't see why if uh, they come to us for absolution, uh, why they can't receive that sacrament. But there you are, there's the matter for theologians. Uh, communion, no, of course not. We're not allowed to, in no way. Uh, does that answer it? Is that all? Yes, I just answer, asked what you did, and you've now told me, Father. Thank you. Uh, Father, um, perfect act of contrition. I've heard it said that it is impossible to make a perfect act of contrition. Would you agree? Because if a person makes a perfect act of contrition, all their sins are forgiven and they don't need to go to confession again. Perfect act of contrition. Could you... Say something about the per- what is a perfect act of contrition? 
How one makes the perfect act of contrition? It, it's sorrow for sin arising from, mo- motivated in some way by the love of God. For non-Catholics, uh, yes, yeah, sure, it, it, uh, whoever they are, non-Christians, if they turn from sin with uh, sorrow for sin because they love God, God is bound to forgive that sin. You know, I'm no theologian. Uh, for a Catholic, it's got to include the intention of going to confession. And so for a Catholic to make a perfect act of contrition, think that's good enough in no way. Uh, they still got to go to confession. Uh, mind you, the, sin, the sin's already forgiven. The sin's already forgiven, but they have to mention it. But uh, is it impossible to make a... Uh, such a yes, perfect... I've heard it said. Yes, I have too, that uh, the number of people who make a perfect act of contrition, very, very few. Now, I just reckon that God's on our side. I mean, after all, God wants us to get to heaven. He wants to forgive us our sins. Um, sorrow is an act of the will. Yes. So I don't have to cry bucketfuls when I go to confession. No. And I, and I am no. sorrow. I, am, I say I'm truly sorry for my sin because it is an act of the will. Yes. Then I say it is possible to make a perfect act of contrition. Yes. You agree, Father? Yes, I do, yes. Thank you. There's one right at the front. Sasha, right here, please. to keep you on the move tonight. Yeah, um, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank Father Twait for a wonderful, most wonderful illumination for us people in confession, modern time, because we don't hear it spoken very often these days uh, in the churches. But I was very glad he brought up the last point, because recently I had a discussion with a priest. He said it was selfish to go to uh, confession and communion so often. So the explanation I give him was that it was, if each of us Catholics were... Uh, the spiritual health was good. It was good for the whole body. So I agreed with Father Twain on that last point. And he didn't answer me. <laughs> it was good for the whole body of Christ, of each individual. The more healthy each one was, the more healthier the body of the church as a whole was. So I, I thought I, I was very good with Father Twain to draw that up. Thank you. Father, would you agree that <clears throat> the kind of satisfaction that uh, the penitent might hope to receive from the sacrament of penance depends, to a certain extent, on the confessor regarding the penitent's sins as being as serious as a penitent does? And in those cases where the priest seems to regard uh, rather lightly what the penitent, penitent might consider to be serious and sends him away with what can only be described as very trivial penance makes it increasingly difficult to receive the kind of satisfaction that one might hope at that time. I never thought of that before. <laughs> uh, Satan, before we sin, he makes sins 
much less than they really are. After we've sinned, he makes them seem more serious than they really are. The priest perhaps puts things in the right. The priest's all bearing in mind the goodness of God and the love of the father for the prodigal son puts things in their right sort of proportion. As for giving a small penance, coming to confession itself, it's such a... Uh, that, that's, that's the penance for many people. And I must say... Well, if you come to be fast, I give something big, but I always give something pretty small. Uh, I remember in a school, I was sort of trying to vary the penances according to what I... And as a boy was going out, I heard him whisper to the boy coming in, five rosaries. I never thought that they swapped, you know, so after that I gave everybody three Hail Marys. <laughs> uh, I'd have thought it helped. If, if it really is serious, uh, and, a, and a priest poo-poos it, and a person comes in saying it's an abortion or something, that you, and the priest says, oh, well, you know, even so, I suppose what he's trying to think of is that, objectively speaking, what you've done is dreadful. But subjectively speaking, only God knows. And what you need right now is the mercy of God. It's the, it's the sacrament of God's mercy. And if a person comes back to God humbly, confessing the most awful sins, who do they meet with? Not a judge, a merciful saviour. And so that's what the priest's job is, I think, just to show the penitent how glad God is to have him back and uh, try to encourage him now. So I think it's most priests, they take that line that uh, people have to be encouraged to come back to confession again. And uh, let's say it's a, person, a sin that a person keeps doing. If the priest shows himself sort of harsh, uh, the, the penitent might just lose heart and not dare come back. But if the priest shows himself compassionate and encouraging and saying, God's good, God's merciful, you know, just keep trying, ask our blessed lady to help you, then the person's encouraged. I once saw a poor woman in a, a marvellous family, two priests, one was an obvious, no, a priest and a brother and a sister was a nun, and this woman, married with some children, and she had a sort of a breakdown. And she saw her sins so clearly. There was no exaggeration in, her, in the sight of her sins. But she just couldn't keep within the same picture the goodness and mercy of God. She got everything all out of proportion. Sure, our sins are terrible. But you've got to keep in the same picture the goodness and mercy of our Heavenly Father. And so the priest maybe tries to get that across and encourage a person to think that, after all, I, I'm not cut off from God. God loves me. I'm, I'm part of his family still. So I think it's the priest's job to try to soften things down and encourage a person and make them God feeling great and how much loved they are by God. Uh, that, that's, I think most priests look at it that way. Um, I couldn't agree more, Father, that the confessional is emphatically not the place where a priest should be severe. 
But um, I wonder if there isn't another question following on Kevin Tully's. Does the efficacy of the sacrament, is it in any way affected by whether the priest has the authentic mind of the church or not? If, for instance, he genuinely considers, because he is in heresy, say, that your sins are not really sins. Well, let's say he, he just doesn't think that abortions are sin, and you go to confession and say you've done a few abortions, and uh, he says, right, well, three Hail Marys, and without any sort of word about uh, are you resolved not to do this again, uh, no, if he gives absolution, it works. <clears throat> Hang it all, if a sinful priest offers Mass, it, it, uh, we do have the sacrament. And so if a priest with faculties gives absolution, uh, it, it, it's, uh, we receive the sacrament. If we started letting ourselves think about this, you'd get in a terrible mess. Now, I think the Church has dealt with this uh, question long ago and says that whatever the priest, whatever he's standing, if he's a priest, if he's got faculties, the sacraments work. God you know, backs up his Church. Uh, to get back to abortion, Father, I understood that it, it carries a penalty of excommunication. So uh, how does one become reconciled with the Church? Surely you'd have to go through some more formal process, uh, like going to confession to a bishop or someone, <coughs> rather than to a priest. Do you know, in the new Code of Canon Law, I, I just don't know what it is for that. It used to be, but... Uh, one does not incur the censures of the church if one is unaware of their existence. And so in the old days, uh, I just assumed that people had never heard about excommunication and didn't know that abortion carried with it uh, the censure of excommunication, in which case they did not incur it. And so I gave absolution, even though it was a sin reserved to the bishop, because I reckoned... I think all ordinary priests, uh, I think that was the ordinary way of doing things. And it may sound a bit sort of loose and uh, lax on the part of a priest, <coughs> but uh, so for, I suppose if someone comes along and says, I had an abortion, I know there's an excom excommunication attached to it, Dude, I really ought to know what a prison code is. But in the old days, if a person had said that, I'd have to say, well, in that case, I have to uh, check up on this, come back next week or tomorrow. But we do not incur censures of the Church if we're unaware of their existence. And, I, and that's what covered my conscience <laughs> in the past when I gave absolution in cases of abortion. There's one behind you first, then we'll come back to the front. Father, Cardinal Oddi stated, didn't he, that if a priest... Um, did not accept a money vitae, and someone went to confession to that priest um, knowing that he did not agree with the church's teaching on a money vitae, that that person did not receive absolution. Yes, I'd say that's sort of rather mocking God. Uh, if a person uh, who decided to disobey the church in this matter goes to a priest who they know is of the same mind I say that they're mocking God it's the same thing it's just not mentioning sins in confession 
So I'd say that they are in, in a very bad situation spiritually. Actually, I behaved badly, I suppose. I remember this was just after Humani Vitae, and having long argument with a man about Humani Vitae and contraception. And it would have been after Humani Vitae, and I said, well, I know a priest, and he takes a sort of rather different line, and uh, maybe, you know, if you go and have a talk with him, but actually within a week that priest gave up the priesthood. So uh, that's settled that. No, uh, if, if people start playing that sort of game, I say they're in real bad faith. It's the same subject, Father, and I ask it because I want to know what to say to my teenage children. Um, if uh, a couple are using artificial birth control and they don't have firm um, commitment to try not to use artificial birth control, can they receive Holy Communion? This is what I say in confession. I say, uh, well, you've heard of the Billings Method, have you? And they say, no. And I sort of explain roughly what it's all about. And I say, look, I'll bring a book round tomorrow. I'll, I'll, I'll let you have the book on it tomorrow. Will you give it a try? Will you talk it over with your husband? And then if they say, yes, they will, I reckon that's good enough. And I give them absolution. But if a person is determined not to do it, then they can't go to the sacraments. And I always come back to the point of obedience. The whole of this life is going to be a test between my will and God's will. Who comes on top, God or me? If I'm going to tell, to, tell God to get lost, fine, we've got free will. But I can't expect heaven. Unless I'm ready to submit my will to the divine will, I cannot expect heaven. There are innumerable tests all through life. It's a series of little tests. And uh, Sunday Mass is one of the easiest. But the place where most people part company with God is in what concerns the Sixth Commandment. And St. Alphonse said everybody in hell, I think it was him, is in some way connected with sins against the Sixth Commandment. So this matter I prefer to get down to the issue of obedience. Is it going to be my running my life or is God going to? They can't have it both ways. They can't please themselves in this way and expect heaven. If I could just come in there, Father, on the question of advice given in confessions, the last three questions have been on this. I have a very good priest friend who often says, if only the church had made the seal of confession work both ways, because the Advice and counsel given in confession apply to the penitent and not necessarily to anybody else. Would you like to comment on that? Yeah, I suppose I hadn't thought of that, that uh, people do talk about confession and what people say to them, but they may not put in all the circumstances, and so people may apply it. The, the seal of confession it does apply to the priest, and it, it doesn't apply to the... Uh, penitent there was that book brought out wasn't there uh, which uh, took tape recordings of priests words in confession and uh, Rome reacted very promptly and any bookseller stocking it was excommunicated automatically anyone buying it, anyone having their possession was automatically excommunicated it's a terrible thing to, 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 to try to bring out a book like that no it doesn't bind the penitent 
And I suppose they do swap stories. And I suppose perhaps that's how people find a, a, an easy priest. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I, I knew a marvellous holy priest, Father Gitz in Glasgow, and he was what you call an easy priest. Uh, half the priests in, the, in Glasgow went to confession to him, I think. And uh, he was a marvellous old man. And he, he was just a good priest, but uh, he was easy in that he was gentle. And however big your sin, I, he just sort of let you down gently. I remember I'd belong to Legion of Mary Presidium up there, and some old lag who hadn't been to confession for years, they were going to try to get him along. They were going to get him Father Gitz, because they reckoned that he'd help him back. So I suppose people do talk, and uh, maybe it, it has its good effect, that too, if they say that he's, he was really helpful. You come along, you find it quite easy. <laughs> now, there's two questions. There's one hand at the back somewhere. Right in the corner. Oh, and then we'll come up the front again, Cecil. I want to keep you moving tonight. <laughs> um, what do you think, Father, of the attempts being made by certain sectors in the church to usurp the powers of the priesthood. Um, for example, in America, we now have groups of lay people meeting together clandestinely to ordain nuns in um, basements in New York. So also in America and now on the continent also, <laughs> we have groups of lay people meeting to discuss their sins without the presence of a priest, thinking that simply by participation in these groups, they are somehow mystically absolved um, by powers which the laity possess themselves. Well, there are many Protestantizing sort of movements going around in the church. Uh, and as an ex-heretic myself, I, I sort of see these as, you know, on all sides. Uh, confessing to a layman, mind you, St. Ignatius in Loyola, there was no priest around. Before battle started, he confessed to a layman. And I read somewhere that was a practice people did then, if there was no no priest around. I suppose it's an act of contrition, an act of humility. And uh, in the situation, maybe all one could do, I think that's just dotted to start... Uh, I mean, confession's hard enough anyhow, perhaps, but to go confessing to a layman. No. No, the Protestant... There are so many Protestantizing influences going around in the Church. Many, many. And if I may say so, well, now I won't get on to charismatic renewal. But, uh, no, no, that's just one more than what, what, what you mentioned. Up here, Sir John would like to say something. It's just that uh, I promised Ken Platt, who phoned this morning, that I asked this question. It has some bearing, really, on the previous questions that have been asked on contraception. He said, some person of considerable stature in the church wrote in the tablet recently that contraception was not always a serious sin, thereby inferring that confession was not always necessary in that regard. Well, objectively speaking, it's always a serious sin. Subjectively speaking, uh, who can tell? Only God can tell. But it's the duty of the priest to educate people, surely. I knew a bishop in, in, a, in one of the West Indian countries. He said that he thought for many people adultery wasn't a sin, meaning not subjectively a mortal sin because there's such a sort of promiscuous environment. But objectively speaking, it's, uh, it's always a mortal sin, yes. And, uh, but subjectively speaking, only God knows. Does that answer it? We, we can't get... It's, it always has been. It's been a constant teaching of the Church right through the centuries, hasn't it? 
And if Rumani Vita isn't infallible, really, I don't know what is. There was another hand, be- there are two hands behind you. We'll take one at a time. How does one find a spiritual advisor? I tell Carlos to shop around a bit. I may say that uh, I've several times told people to go to Opus Dei because all the priests I've met from that organization, there's not been any of them who have been unsound theologically. They've all been completely one with the teaching of, uh, of Rome. But I said to Jennifer, we will shop around a bit and uh, go to confession in different places. But it is important for people to have somebody they can. And a, a priest, really, they should find a priest that they can talk to. I think if people do, do look around uh, sufficiently, they can. But I'm afraid I, I do take that sort of rather shortcut because I, I've known a number of Opus Dei priests and uh, they've all been completely sound in, in the faith. Other people might be, might not be. But I think you just find a priest and then ask him, for, tell, say where you live, and maybe he knows somebody who lives near there. But there are lots of really sound priests about. I know many you know, who are re- really well worth taking for spiritual direct- directors. Just in front, gentlemen. Um, Father, do you think um, we all know that the number of confessions have fallen and it's a Holy Father's wish that frequent confession (coughs) came back? But paradoxically, uh, the awe which surrounded the communion rails, if they were brought back in churches where they'd been thrown out, um, that might help confession if we knelt more. May I put it this way? If any of us were to see the accolade of knighthood, uh, we go down at least men on one knee to our earthly monarch. How much more, unless we're suffering from severe arthritis, shouldn't we be joyfully going down on two knees to our divine master yes it's a fact if we don't behave the way we believe we come to believe the way we behave and uh, the receiving of holy communion in the hand which I've got a thing about actually because of the objective the objective sacrilege nothing I mean I've seen people receive it so devoutly but out of the hundreds of communions in the hand I've given, I can only think of two people who have scrutinized the palm of their hand for fragments in the way a priest should scrutinize a communion plate. What happened to those fragments that drop off? They must go on the ground. Well, that is object, no subjective sin, people, but it is objective sacrilege. Uh, I find this a very painful matter, I'm afraid, Yeah, following on on that, Father, communion in the hand, which I say laws respect for the Holy Sacrament. 
What do you think of the extraordinary ministers of the Holy Communion, lay ministers, which we now have in our local church? What do you say about that? They go with impunity to the tabernacle, open the tabernacle, take the chalice out, and march round and give out Holy Communion. Oh! Yes, I, what do we do about it? Yes, a friend of mine was dying. Well, he actually survived, but the nurse told me he'd very nearly died out in Croydon. And again, it was it was a religious sister came to give him communion. He said, "No, he wanted." So I had to go down and give him communion. The danger for the sick is that uh, they may very well want confession, but they would not have the courage to say, "I need confession." And so it might lead to bad communions. But if there's a priest, I remember when I was in, in St. Thomas's, they came from the cathedral, the parish priest, and he said, do you want confession? That was really nice. So I went to confession. Uh, in hospital especially, I think, people should be asked, do you want confession? Because it's a great sacrament, and they may have something they've just remembered, and they want to get sorted out. But in church... I think it's dotty. I remember sitting down at one midnight mass and some good lady giving out Holy Communion. Uh, and it must have its effect on vocations. Uh, well, it, it, it's not according to the mind of the, ch- of the Church that there should be all these people. If you read the, doc- the Roman documents, it's extraordinary ministers I suppose the parish priest says they're needed and the bishop bishop takes their word for it and that's it. One right at the back, he's trying to get in for some time. (coughs) Father, a friend of mine picked up a book of allocutions not so long ago. I'm afraid I don't remember the title of it, but in it it said that uh, to receive, to go to Mass with unconfessed venial sin on one's conscience was sacrilegious. He then went on to uh, point out uh, Pope Pius XII's um, statements on, ven- on venial sin in the back of Mystici Corporis Christi. Do you yourself um, think that they are uh, as directly... Um, relevant to one another is that. I, mean, I think, seem to remember you said something about uh, the Holy Spirit earlier on is the intention behind Mystici Corporis Christi. No, to go to communion with unconfessed venial sin is not a, is not sacrilege, no. If, if there's unconfessed mortal sin, uh, sure, yes, we have to go to confession first. Or if it's just impossible to go to confession, well, um, a perfect act of contrition before we receive communion. But venial sin now, uh, communion remits. If, if, if you're just sort of rather tired, you don't need to see the doctor, you just need to have a good meal. And for all these venial sins we commit every day, Holy Communion is a sacrament for them. My priest told me that if you, if you spill the cup, 
or if you drop a fragment and it's no longer, you can no longer consume it, it no longer is the precious blood, no, doesn't contain the, even the host, it's no longer just a sacrament. For the fragments, so long as they retain the appearance of, of bread, yes, there uh, is the real presence. And so the fragments that drop, that's the real presence. And uh, it's, it's this that I find so distressing. It doesn't matter whether the hands are clean or dirty. And uh, it's not a matter of the sinfulness of anything. We sin much more with our tongue, after all. But uh, no, it's the question of, of guarding the fragments. And as for spilling the chalice, the precious blood, well, as long as it retains the appearance of wine, it's still the real presence, yes. But... Uh, I had a priest who spilt a chalice by mistake over his hair, and he had to have his, his head was shaved. Uh, if one spilled it on the carpet, I imagine one had to cut the bit of carpet out and burn it. That is one reason for not giving the chalice uh, all the time. No, to spill a fragment, or to spill a drop of the precious blood, that is the real presence, sure. It's only when it loses the appearance of bread or wine that uh, the real presence is no longer there. I'm wondering what we lay people can do to try and make our bishops bring things back to the old reverence in the church and to stop all this thing. What can we do about it? What can the laity do? Well, they say that we should, they should write to Rome. I did write to the Holy Father about communion of the hand. And then six months later I got a letter back from the apostolic delegate thanking me. Maybe I, I, I did it the wrong way. Maybe I should have written to Cardinal Oddi or Cardinal Ratzinger. But uh, I'm told that uh, one, the more people write to Rome, the better. If they get sackfuls of letters asking for communion, they had to be forbidden. The front cover of Paris Match, after the Holy Father went to France, it showed Madame Giscard d'Estaing with a hand out for Holy Communion and the Pope giving a communion of the mouth. Actually, the photographers knew there was going to be this confrontation. And they got their lenses, you know, zoomed in on, 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 on her. And it showed her with her hands out and the Holy Father giving communion in the mouth. It just shows his mind on the matter. I suppose he'd be very happy if millions of Catholics did write in saying, for heaven's sake, stop this. Father, what do you say to your teenagers going to Holy Communion, probably Easter, at Christmas, holidays, and never going to confession, are they committing sacrilege? In, in the Holy Father's uh, nine addresses about, uh, about confession, which Frank Swarbrick's brought out in his ACT pamphlet, he ends up his last talk on that particular point and says it's marvellous, apparently, the community is increasing, but what about confessions? He just hopes there aren't any sacrileges. Communions. And the priest, when I mentioned it to the local priest, he said, I shouldn't say anything to them. I should leave them. Well, I always ask people when they last went to confession, and if they haven't been for some time, I, I really try to push them into it. Yes. It's dangerous not to go.
Father said that confessions or going to confession has dropped by 50% in a certain amount of time. Is that right? It's more than that, I think, yes. It's a conservative estimate. It would be interesting to know if anybody has any theories as to why this is so before we finish. Why do you think that people don't go to confession as they once did? One, I two, that lady hasn't had a chance to be in yet. We'll let you no. come first. We don't seem to get any sermons, Father, about any sense of sin these days. We don't seem to get any, what I call, not in... Perhaps I better not say where I come from, but we don't seem to get any sermon that talks about sin at all, or evil, or anything. So how can you expect them to? And everything outside the church is geared to believing what you like and doing what you like, and that the way to against them, or rather, I'm putting this badly, but the, um, how can I say, if the, if the church isn't going to speak about sin and the sermons or evil, how are they ever going to feel that they need to go to confession? Let's carry straight on with the lady there who has another contribution on the same subject. And that I'm 21, and, and at my school, and all the schools of, the friend, of my friends, we were never taught about sin. I mean, our religious, our Catholic education is non-existent, so we're the victims. Over there, please, uh, let's just let them, we have all these. Uh, I put it down to post-Vatican II. Immediately after Vatican II, priests themselves were going around saying there was very little need for confession. And it's grown from there. There's one in front. Unfor- Unfortunately, there are priests who, when you do go to confession, will say to you, well, do you think it's a sin? Uh, what does your conscience say? And this is very confusing, and it does stop you going for confession because you think, well, perhaps after all, it doesn't need confessing, so why go back to confession? There's one more here, Cecil. The... Um the easy attitude towards sin. Let's confess our faults and our failures. Faults and failures are not sins. We have to confess our sins, and that's never said. Number one. Then the sacrament of reconciliation. While, mind, I, I didn't have anything particular against that because I thought it was good for people. When our priest did it, he did it beautifully. It was good for people who hadn't been to confession for a long time and it might get them to go. But we've got so much, God loves you, and that licenses you to commit all the sins and it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, we'll ask Father to respond to those um, reasons why confession is not. We have another one, have we? Well, um, uh, Pope John Paul reiterated what Pope Paul said, Paul VI, and he said a priest should leave uh, uh, even important things, should neglect important things and concentrate on the confessional. Even if it meant the parish lost in other ways, the confessional was more important than many, most of his other duties. There's one at the back, and then I'll ask Father to respond. These are all um, more or less on the same subject. And a small one halfway down. Um, I think one of the main reasons is it simply has to be admitted that many of the clergy just don't believe in hell anymore or in damnation. And um, Cecil, lady just in front of her. Father, with so many schools nowadays trying to introduce the idea of later first confession, do you think this has had any effect? And may I briefly say that from personal experience, 
I found that in several of our Catholic secondary schools, the chaplains were actually telling the children, boys, oh, it's no, no need for you to go to confession frequently. Once a year is enough. So on those two points, Father, don't you think that's something to be considered? Yes, I, I think it stems perhaps from Corpus Christi College. Uh, I went to a couple of summer schools 20, many, 20 years ago, was it more, more than 20 years ago. It was uh, Peter de Rosa who gave the talks on confession. And he spoke against frequent confession. He taught from the merely psychological point of view. He never mentioned sacramental grace. When he was questioned about sacramental grace, he didn't answer it. But he sat, the whole burden of his talk was against frequent confession. I suppose he didn't go off on himself. And I wasn't surprised when he gave up the priesthood afterwards. So I, I think it stems from that, because every religious congregation in the country about would have sent people along to, to that, to Corpus Christi College. Many priests went there, and they got this false teaching. It done, did incalculable harm. I remember that, Father, because... I taught within a mile of Corpus Christi. So to our sorrow, we knew what was going on long before the public. But also, it was brought up at a Westminster pastoral council when Cardinal Heenan was alive, the idea of delaying first confession until 10, 11, or 12. Cardinal Heenan himself did not agree with this. And one of the reasons put forward by the people who wanted to delay first confession was the children are frightened. Well, I taught in a primary school for 30 years, and I used to inspect about 80 children every year who were prepared for confession. I never found one frightened. I never found one parent asking me, not to let the children, they didn't want the children make confession. It was just the ideas of people without experience that thought children were terrified to go, wait until 10 or 11. And they, I disagreed with that, and so did Cardinal Heenan. They, they love it. I had to hear my two nieces first confession not long ago. They're identical twins. They do everything together. And so I had to let them come to confession together. <laughs> They were just going on and on, reminding each other, until finally I had to say, look, I think that's enough for your first confession. <laughs> <laughs> children, children love going to confession. 